Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. The chorus of that song we just sang is a fabulous expression of the extent of God's grace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. Great expression of his infinite love. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Grace is the standard for New Testament doctrine of giving for support of the local church and for support of missionaries. It is not something that's supposed to be motivated by guilt or motivated by emotion or any other uh, factor that is really part of legalism. It's something that is premeditated, something that is determined in the soul of each individual believer based upon his understanding of, of God's grace and what God has done for him and his understanding and appreciation for all that God has done. It's part of the expression of gratitude for God's grace. So Scripture says, as every man purposeth in his heart, as he thinks about it, reflects upon it, makes a uh, decision in terms of how he is going to be involved in the support of uh, various ministries. As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father, we're indeed grateful that you have given so much to us that in the expression of your infinite love at the cross, you provided everything for us, everything for our salvation, for our spiritual life. These gifts now are are a token of our appreciation and gratitude for all that you have done for us. We dedicate these to your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. This life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Scripture teaches that at the cross, Christ paid the penalty for all sin. Nothing is to be added to that. It is a sufficient and complete payment. When we trust Christ as Savior, we have eternal life because Christ has already paid for everything. But Just as in any family, when there is a violation of the authority of God in our life, when we violate his standards and sin, there is a breach of fellowship 
a breakdown in the relationship, and so there must be a system of recovery. And God's grace system of recovery is to simply acknowledge or admit our sin to him in the privacy of prayer, and at that instant, God forgives us. We are cleansed and forgiven of all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship, recovered the filling of the Holy Spirit to resume our spiritual advance. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a tremendous privilege that we have to sit and study your word. As we reflect throughout uh, on believers throughout the ages, down through the corridors of time, there have been very few who have had the privilege that we have to sit in a comfortable environment, to have in our laps the completed canon of Scripture, to have a, a pastor teacher who has prepared to study the word and teach the word, Uh, Feed us the eternal truths of your word. And yet, Father, because this is so uh, common and it is something we have, often we uh, forget how unique this is in the world today and in history. So we're grateful that we have your word. For we know that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is only in the light of your word that we see light. Now, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be responsive to the truths that are there, that we might come to understand more fully your plans and purposes in human history, and therefore your plans and purposes for our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we continue our study in Revelation chapter 5, we come to verse 5.11. 5.11, the apostle John, who has written... The book of Revelation says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels. This is his next scene. He uses this phrase, Then I looked, uh, several times in chapter 5 as he moves from one scenario to the next. And he hears the voice of many angels around the throne. Now, in this section of Revelation, that is from chapter 4 through chapter 19, dealing with the period of the tribulation, this is our first real mention of the word angelos for angel. We have talked about the living creatures in relationship to the fact that they are a classification of angel. In earlier studies in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we talked about the meaning of the word angel as it uh, relates to the seven letters to the seven churches. And in some places we have talked about angels and their place in Scripture here or there. But we really haven't put all of this together. And as we are on the verge of getting into the seven seven, uh, trumpet judgments at the beginning of the book of Revelation, as we get ready to go into, or the seven seal judgments rather, as we get ready to go into the main part of the tribulation, we recognize that angels play a vital role in this entire study. And to truly understand what happens in God's prophetic plan for mankind, we must understand how human history fits within the broader context 
of God's plans and purposes for all of his creatures, including the angels, and that human history does not operate in isolation from what God is also doing within the angelic realm as it relates to Satan's original rebellion against God and the fact that he led approximately a third of the angels in rebellion against God. And we refer to that as the angelic conflict. So we're taking another step back from the book of Revelation for a few weeks to do a topical study on angels and the angelic conflict. Last time, I talked about many questions that come up when people begin to talk about angels. We ask, well, who are the angels? What are angels like? How many angels are there? What do they look like? What are their uh, powers and abilities? Can we see them? Uh, what about people who think angels appear have appeared to them uh, today? Are there good and bad angels? Uh, when were angels created? A very important question to address. Uh, when did Satan fall? Another important question to address. Uh, questions about the identity of the fallen angels, the demons, the evil spirits, what they can do to us, and finally, what does human history have to do with the angels, if anything? As we go into this somewhat of an overview of what the Bible teaches about angels, I pointed out last time that we see the importance of angels in the book of Revelation and the events of Revelation because there are some 65, I'm just going to round it off to 65 because there are some textual questions here or there, but there is approximately 65 uh, uh, mentions of angels in the book of Revelation as opposed to about 175 in the entire New Testament. That means that approximately one-third of the mention of angels, the discussion about angels or identification of angels within the New Testament, falls within the period of eschatology known as the Tribulation. That tells us, just at the very surface, that the events of the Tribulation are specifically related to what goes on within the angelic realm. And so you can't come to understand uh, biblical prophecy, the events of prophecy, why do these things take place, why all of these different kinds of judgments, how do we interpret various passages in Revelation unless we have that grounded upon a solid understanding of angelology. I have often observed and commented down through the years that the study of biblical prophecy, which is known by the technical term of eschatology from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last or last things, that the study of eschatology is the uh, sort of the crown of all theology because to understand eschatology, to understand what is revealed in Old Testament books such as Daniel, Jeremiah, Zechariah, to understand New Testament prophecy, Matthew 24, as well as Revelation, you must have a sound understanding of all of the other disciplines of theology, from hermeneutics to theology proper to angelology to soteriology. All of these must be mastered. Otherwise, when you come to a study of, of Revelation, you can easily be led astray either through uh, poor interpretation of symbols 
or because you misidentify various various uh, events and things that go on. So it's uh, often young pastors will start off trying to teach something like this. I know I did and wished I'd never gotten into it because I hadn't mastered everything else yet. So it's important to have this framework when we come to uh, the text itself, and this will become more apparent when we get into the details of the fall of the creature known originally in the Hebrew as Hillel ben Shahar, uh, translated as Lucifer the light bearer in the King James Version, which is really a poor translation. You don't have a n- name like that in the Hebrew. It's simply Hillel ben Shahar, and he is later identified as Satan or the devil. And that identification of that creature in Isaiah 14 and his fall is actually set within the context of a prophecy that is covered in Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 14 that directly relates to numerous events in the book of Revelation. So you'll find that aspect of this study to be quite fascinating. So we set the stage last time, talked briefly about the angelic conflict just in terms of an overview, that the angelic conflict is a term that refers to the invisible warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God, and this is displayed in human history in what is sometimes referred to as spiritual warfare. Different terms are used by different people, angelic conflict, angelic rebellion, spiritual warfare. All of these relate to an event that originally began in the angelic realm with a rebellion against God. We talked about the course of the angelic conflict, that it began with the rebellion of this creature identified in Isaiah 14 as Hillel ben Shahar at some time in eternity past. That rebellion then focused on the creation of Adam and mankind in the Garden of Eden. And there is a particular test in the Garden of Eden, and Satan takes on the form of a serpent in order to enter into the events in the Garden of Eden to tempt first the woman so that she would tempt the man and uh, so that he could take dominion over human history because of the failure of the human race. Later, it intensifies again as God chooses to work out his plan through one particular individual and his descendants. He calls out Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and through his descendants, Isaac and Jacob and Israel, God is going to conduct his plan to uh, have victory over Satan and to provide redemption for the entire human race so that Israel becomes a focal point of the angelic conflict, whether it's Israel of the Old Testament and Satan's attempt to distract them from the worship of God through idolatry and various other things that happened during the Old Testament period in order to prevent the coming of the Messiah. He failed to do that. He attempted to destroy the Messiah, which was really his undoing, because in his attempt to destroy the Messiah, the Messiah had his ultimate victory over the serpent, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis uh, 3.15, that the Messiah gave the serpent a fatal wound at the cross. Nevertheless, Satan is still alive and well on planet Earth, as Hal Lindsey put it in the title of his book, and Satan is still 
uh, operating very much so today. He is not bound, as some would say, because of a false interpretation of Revelation chapter 20. And he still targets Israel. And he is the father of all anti-Semitism because the only thing he has left to do to win in the battle against God is to block God's fulfillment of his promises to the nation Israel. He has been defeated at the cross, but if he can keep God from from fulfilling his promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises he has made in the covenants of the Old Testament, then he believes he can win. So his strategy, or one of his major strategies in this age, is to destroy Israel. That is why you cannot understand the trends of history if you do not understand God's plans and purposes for the nation Israel. And if someone said that some 200 years ago, uh, they might be questioned. But as events have turned in the last 200 years with the rise of modern Zionism, the return of Jews to the land, the establishment of the uh, nation Israel in 1948 or 1947, you now have a existing in the Middle East for Israel and things have moved and to indicate a fulfillment of many prophecies. And so uh, Satan is targeting them and you've also had a radical increase in anti-Zionism, anti-Israel propaganda and uh, anti-Semitism. So Israel is very much a part of the, the end time scenario and we'll see that as we go through the uh, various judgments from the uh, seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments in Revelation. Uh, Satan's defeated at the cross, and there is an intensification of the angelic conflict during the church age because of what God is doing in the spiritual life of individual believers. All of this is uh, uh, things that we will discuss more fully. This leads to the, ultimately, there will be the removal of the church at the rapture, followed by the period known as Daniel's 70th week or the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. The use of that title indicates the Jewish orientation of this period in terms of uh, the dispensation of Israel. This will be the final Satan's final war, final attempt to uh, stop God, prevent God from fulfilling his uh, promises and plans to Israel, and the final judgment on uh, on the the angels and on man. Then there will be the establishment of the millennium, which will lead to the end of evil at the final judgment at the Gog and Magog rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's just a brief summary of the course of the angelic conflict. But human history, what's going on today, what you read on the newspapers, the, the moves that are taking place whenever we see uh, th- events such as uh, in the early 90s when uh, the Soviet bloc fell apart, whenever you see things today such as the uh, rise of militant Islam, whenever you see things like the rise of uh, people like Ahmadinejad who wants to completely wipe Israel off the face of the earth, whenever you see nations going to war now in the Middle East, Whatever your views may be on whether they should be there or not be there, how the wars should be conducted, whatever else, as a believer with a framework of doctrine, 
what you see and what you know is not necessarily that this is the fulfillment of prophecy, but that God is moving the chess pieces of history, as it were, and he is setting the stage. It may be a year, it may be a hundred years before the pieces are in place for the, the final conflict, but we can sit back as neutral observers and understand what is happening within the broad scenario of God's plan. Now, when we start, begin to talk about the angelic conflict, first thing we have to do is understand something about angels. There's all kinds of things that are written about angels. I remember a pop book that came out back in the early 80s called Angels on Assignment. And it was written by uh, a couple who believed that angels had appeared to them and communicated to them. And it's amazing how many people bought into this kind of thing. It was a, a, a massive bestseller later on in the uh, late 80s, there were a couple of novels written by a guy named Frank Peretti called Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness, and they, they had a lot of uh, things going on in there where he tried to show angelic involvement, uh, the, sort of as it were, uh, pulling back the curtain on the invisible to help people get an idea of how angels are involved in human history. What amazed me is the number of people who who really bought into a lot of his theological ideas, not realizing they came out of a very uh, distorted, mystical, uh, Pentecostal, charismatic uh, theology of angels. And they just thought, oh, isn't this wonderful? I, I've been encouraged to pray more because of it. I had a, uh, a Ph.D. student at Dallas Seminary tell me that, how can you be critical of this book? You know, I read it, and I've been encouraged to pray more. Isn't that good? I said, so you believe the end justifies the means. What the theology in the book says, that the that angels are limited in their activity by the prayers of the saints. If the saints don't pray, the angels can't, don't pray, the angels can't act. The more they pray, the more they'll act. It's sort of like the prayers of the saints are the uh, air that fills up a blow-up doll. You know, the more you pray, the bigger and more powerful the angels become. The less you pray, the more deflated they are and the more impotent they become. And um, I said, so where do you find that in the Bible? Oh, well, you know, you've got to give him literary license. You know, the Lord used a lot of fiction to teach doctrinal truth. They were called parables. Just because it's fiction doesn't mean it doesn't communicate a worldview or it doesn't communicate the author's view of what truth is. But we live in a world today where, have you noticed how Christian fiction has just taken off in the last 15 or 20 years? used to be you'd go into a Christian bookstore and you would see uh, whole sections of commentaries and concordances and theologies. And now they cover this, this one little bookcase back in the corner and there are rows of books on Christian fiction. Nobody wants to study and think anymore. They just want to be entertained, and most of the folks who are writing this Christian fiction don't have good theology, and so their weak, impotent theology works its way out in fiction, and people just suck it up because they think, oh, well, it's just fiction. I don't have to believe it, but they are influenced by it, and that's the problem. We don't go to the Bible anymore 
for our source of authority. So we have to ask the question, how do we know what we know about angels? And people have had various experiences in history, and there's all sorts of ideas, and you can see these displayed in works of art on all kinds of um, in all kinds of museums around the world and in different places and different cathedrals, but we have to go back to the scripture. Last time I put this familiar chart up here. I just want to remind you of this. This is your framework for thinking about anything. How do you know anything? What's its ultimate source of information? And we have four systems of thought, four systems of truth, historically in uh, human history. The first three are all based on something within the creation, a finite view of, uh, of knowledge. The first system is known as rationalism. This is the idea that human reason, human reason on its own, can come to a knowledge of ultimate eternal truth. It's, but the foundation of it is really faith. It is faith in human ability, faith in human reason to be able to accurately identify all the data and come to, come to an understanding of all things. And it's based on a use of logic and reason that is independent of God's word. Man starts on an autonomous starting point, as Descartes did. His starting point was that he existed. He came to that conclusion because he thought he had self-consciousness. So he said, I think, therefore I am. In other words, because I know that I am thinking, I have this self-consciousness, I'm, I know I exist. Now, let me figure out if anything else exists. And so starting with just pure reason, pure logic, from an autonomous starting point of his own existence, he tried to argue to the existence of other things, but he failed. You can't get outside of yourself. It's called solipsism. Look it up. Have a little fun this afternoon. Empiricism is the second category. Now, you can come to a lot of lowercase t truths through rationalism. You can come to a lot of lowercase t truths on the basis of empiricism. We're talking about ultimate truth, eternal truths, universal truths. Uh, Empiricism is based on sense perception, external experience, what you see, taste, uh, touch. Uh, it's, again, interpreted data, so it's ultimately based on faith. It's faith in human ability. See, it's, the, the world has bought into a satanic lie that the contrast is between faith and reason. No. It, the issue is what your faith is based on. Is it based on autonomous human reason, or is it based on God's revelation? And empiricism, again, is based on this independent use of logic and reason. Let me give you an illustration. When Adam was in the garden, God told him to identify, classify, and name all the animals. Through observation, that is empiricism, he could identify numerous things about the animals. He could classify them. He could pair them up, male and female. He could see that that uh, uh, this dog kind looked like that dog kind, and they must be... Uh, male and female, and so he would identify them together. He created these categories. That's, that's empiricism. He could walk around the garden, and he could notice that there were various different kinds of fruit trees in the garden. And God had told them that, that all of this 
all the fruit in the garden was for his sustenance. And so as he examined the fruit, he could see that some was red, some was orange, some was green. He could identify the different kinds of fruit. But if God had not told him that there was one particular tree that would that he could not eat from, and that if he did eat from it, he would uh, die instantly, spiritually, he would not have known that. He could not derive that key piece of information from simple observation or from use of reason. He had to have revelation. He had to have certain key pieces of data so that he could properly then interpret everything about the garden. Without that, he would have uh, never figured it out. Then we have mysticism. Mysticism is really a rejection of any kind of reason and logic. It's just the idea that I have an an inner private experience. I have some sort something intuitive that's happened. I've had a dream at night, and an angel appeared to me, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and it was so real. I was in sweats. It had to be an angel. You can't tell me it wasn't an angel. It's irrational. Therefore. Your use of reason can't contradict my experience. And so for many people, they try to interpret the Bible on the basis of their experience rather than interpreting their experience on the basis of the Bible. So mysticism is independent from the Scriptures, but it's irrational. It's non-verifiable. It's, you, you just get real frustrated talking to folks like this because you can't deny their experience. They had an experience. But did the experience mean what they think it means? That's the issue. And then ultimate truth must be based on revelation because we have an omniscient God who created all things. Therefore, he can speak to all things and he can inform us of all things. So there is an objective revelation of God. It is not exhaustive. That is, he does not tell us everything we would like to know about something, but he has told us everything we need to know about something in order to be able to Uh, understand the world that he has created. So we use logic and reason. Scripture is not anti-reason. It's not faith versus reason. It is a dependent use of faith on the authority of God. And this is foundational to all, all Christianity. This is how we come to understand the existence of angels. Angels are mentioned in, as I pointed out last time, 34 of the 66 books of the Bible, 17 old, 17 new. So it's clear that the Bible establishes their existence. Uh, second point, uh, some of this I covered last time, so I'm just covering this briefly for review. The terms for angels in both Hebrew and Greek describe messenger. This tells us something about the inherent purpose of God's creating these creatures. They were to function as servants or messengers uh, for God. They carry out his plan and his purposes. There are other terms to describe different kinds of angels. You have cherubs, seraphs, an archangel. Uh, they're sometimes referred to as princes, sons of God, principalities, powers, and rulers. Various terms. So they are as clearly established as existing in the Scripture. Third, Jesus Christ referred to angels uh, frequently in his ministry. He understood them to be real creatures. He wasn't just accommodating himself to the superstition and the mythology of the people of his day. That's what liberal theologians will tell you. Oh, angels don't really exist, but people of Jesus' time thought they did, so he talked in those 
those terms. That uh, minimizes and demonstrates a lack of respect for both the people of Jesus' time and the Lord. It uh, is a rejection of his deity, essentially. He described the role of angels in the final judgment, that they would gather uh, the elect from the four corners of the earth. He talked of the relationship of angels to children in Matthew 18, verse 10. There he says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is one of the verses used to substantiate a doctrine of guardian angels, that uh, children are watched over by their own angel. Jesus Christ frequently referred to angels as uh, real creatures, and they were involved in different aspects of his ministry, including his resurrection. Matthew 28, 2 through 6, we're told that his uh, resurrection was first announced by an angel. Matthew 28, 2 says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. This imagery doesn't say that it was lightning or that his clothing was snow. They are similes used to express the fact that, that he, his countenance was brilliant. He, it seems that angels and light often go together and possibly they are made out of a substance, something like light, which allows them to uh, reveal themselves in different different forms. Verse 4, we read that the guards saw the angels. One of the few times in history that angels have been manifested to man. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They passed out. But the angel answered and said to the women when the women appeared, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. So the angels announced his resurrection. Angels also will accompany him and serve him at the second coming. Matthew 13, 39 to 41, 16, 27, 24, 30 to 31, and 25, 31. Angels played a role, of course. I skipped over many different things like their announcement of his birth and other things like that. But angels have an important role. Just just want to give you a few examples to substantiate that particular particular point. So, just as Jesus Christ referred to angels as real and existing creatures, we must believe that they exist and that they are real. To deny the, the existence of angels implies that Jesus Christ was ignorant or superstitious, and it implies that the Bible is, is wrong and perhaps mythological or superstitious. So for the believer, our only source of truth about angels, about demons, about Satan is the Word of God. So what does the Bible tell us about the origin of angels, their, their purpose, their, their destiny? Well, first of all, we know that angels are creatures. They are not divine. They are not to be worshipped as divine. They are finite. They live uh, on into eternity as human beings do, but they had a particular uh, origination point. They are uh, creatures. Psalm 148, verse 5 says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, 
For he gave the command, and they, that is angels, came into existence. They are not self-existent or eternal, but they are creatures. All angels, even uh, Satan, who has the most power, the most abilities, the, the greatest intelligence of any creature, does not uh, come to the same power or ability as God, for he is a creature. He is finite. Angels are created, we're told in Scripture, in individually uh, by God. For this reason, they are called in the Old Testament sons of God, because he is the one who created them. And they were created individually. Angels do not marry. They do not procreate. Uh, God did not begin the angels by creating a male angel and a female angel so that they could then procreate and create all of the angels. This means that there, there's not a unifying uh, factor among the angels. They are all different. Each angel is its own species, as it were. Uh, all angels are called sons of God, and all human beings are called sons of men, according to Ecclesiastes one uh, thirteen. Ecclesiastes 2, 3 and 8, and Daniel 5, 21. Another thing that we know about angels is that they are immaterial uh, spirit creatures. They are not made of the same kind of substance as man. They are referred to sometimes by the word pneuma as spirits, and this indicates that immaterial an aspect of their makeup. They, they do not, therefore, have to uh, conform to the physical laws of the universe as we do. Uh, this has some important implications in terms of their ability to travel, their ability to appear, their ability to uh, manifest their appearance in different ways and in different forms. They don't have material bodies of uh, flesh and bone, and therefore, when Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, in dealing with spiritual warfare, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. One of the applications of this is that when we recognize that we are at war against a radical Islam, when we're at war against terrorists, the ultimate enemy, the enemy behind the enemy, are these spiritual forces of darkness. This is what lies behind these conflicts. Human history, that which happens in the material realm, is indeed impacted by a broader conflict, that which happens in the spiritual realm. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at, is that ultimately our enemy, that's not diminishing the fact that there is a physical enemy, but that that is merely a secondary reality. There is a greater reality that lies behind it, and that is this spiritual, this spiritual conflict. So angels, being immaterial, appear to have the ability to take on physical form. They can appear in different ways to man. Sometimes they appear as angels, they're bright, they have this appearance of light or lightning or brilliance, and at other times they appear no different than a human being. And from that we uh, can derive certain, uh, certain implications. 
Think back with me. We've studied this in our study of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 19, when there were three men who came to visit Abram when he was living on the plains of Mamre outside of what is now uh, modern Hebron in the southern part of, of Judah. Uh, one of these we learn later in the, in the story, in the narrative, is the second person of the Trinity. He is addressed as Lord. He is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to the uh, chapter, the story later on, as the, these two other men accompany him go to uh, Sodom, we find out that they are angels. But Abraham didn't know that initially. They appear to him. He comes out to minister to their needs. He brings them into his tent. They lie down. They rest. He washes their feet. He prepares a feast for them. They eat. They drink. They're, they're, these bodies that they take on have all of the appearance and physicality and function of a regular human being. And he treats them as such. Later on, when the two angels depart and go to Sodom, and they stay with Lot, they appear so much as men that the perverts in Sodom do not recognize that they are anything different, and they desire to have uh, sex with them. When they arrive with Lot, uh, Lot has them come into the house, he uh, provides uh, sustenance for them as the perverts in the town want to have sex with them. Lot goes out to try to dissuade them, and the men reach out their hands. They reach out their, the text says they reach their hand outside the door, and they grab Lot, and they bring him uh, back inside the house. So they have all of these different facets of a physical human body. That tells us that somehow they were able to transform this body of light, this immaterial body, into a very physical body with all of the functions of a normal human physical body. Although Scripture indicates that angels are not inherently sexual creatures, they're not created male or female, Jesus said they do not marry in Matthew 12:25. that doesn't mean that they could not take on some sort of human function and imitate that, which is what happens in Genesis uh, chapter 6. Uh, but whenever angels appear in the Scriptures, they appear as male. The two angels who appeared to Lot in Genesis 19 were, uh, were, appeared as males. Uh, Gabriel appears to Daniel in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9 as a man. Uh, he is called a gabor, which is a Hebrew word for a warrior, a man in full of vigor and strength. It's also referred to in Daniel 9.21 by the Hebrew word ish, meaning a male. The two angels that appear at Jesus' grave are described as aner, which is the Greek word for males, not just men, but uh, males, not mankind. Mark describes the appearance as a young man using a masculine noun and a masculine uh, pronoun. So angels have this appearance as male whenever they, they do appear. Uh, furthermore, angels don't die. They don't have a physical death aspect to their nature because they are not physical. They are invisible to us. They, can't, they can uh, be unseen. They can't be touched by physical, uh, physical things. 
and when they are, that is an exception to the rule. And then one last observation is that angels do not normally have wings. Whenever you see an artist's conception of an angel, uh, angels are depicted with wings, usually two. And uh, yet in Scripture, we have descriptions of one classification of angel that has six wings, another that has four. And so this is a just a minor group of angels. What we do learn is that from the Scripture is that angels are rational rational creatures they are they have personality they have emotion for example in job 38 uh, verses 4 through 7 god is addressing job with a series of rhetorical questions and in this section he says to job well where were you when i created the earth when i laid the foundations of the earth tell me if you have understanding and then let's skip down to verse 7 Uh, When I laid the foundations of the earth, when, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. See, the term morning stars is another term for angels. It's used in a parallel construction with sons of God. And what did they do? They shouted for joy. They were happy. There's other things we'll learn from that verse. We'll come back to it in just a minute. But the only point I'm making here is that angels are rational Creatures with all of the aspects of personality. We also learn from Scripture that angels have incredible powers and ability, far beyond the powers and abilities that human beings have. We have uh, verses such as Psalm 103, verse 20. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word obeying the voice of his word. Angels are associated in Scripture with uh, meteorology, with the winds. They're associated with earthquakes. They're associated with a number of different uh, physical phenomena that are far beyond the ability uh, of human beings. They're said to have great power in numerous passages. We see illustrations of this in the Old Testament where they cause the men of Sodom to be blind in Genesis 19.10. They shut the mouths of the lions when Daniel was uh, put in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6, verse 22. They caused Zechariah, the uh, soon-to-be father of John the Baptist, to be uh, uh, unable to speak until uh, the birth of John the Baptist. They caused the chains to fall off of the apostles and Acts chapter 5, and the prison doors to open without using physical keys or physical force. They caused Herod Agrippa I to die when he claimed to be God in Acts chapter 12. And in the book of Revelation, they will inflict numerous punishments upon uh, mankind. Angels are numerous, the scripture says. As we see in a couple of passages in Revelation, they're identified as being uh, myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. The number of them was myriads of myriads. This is 10,000 of 10,000, some say uh, the Greek word should be uh, translated. Daniel 7, 9, we're told that uh, have a vision of the throne of God. The Ancient of Days took his seat. We have a description of the Ancient of Days. And uh, then in verse 10, 10 we read, that the angels around him are described as thousands upon thousands 
and myriads upon myriads. They are not innumerable. There's not an infinite number, but there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of angels, 10,000 times 10,000. So we have ten mil- minimum 10 million angels, maybe many, many more, maybe 100 million. These are the angels that God has created. Now, the next question is, when were angels created? This is a crucial question to understand. When angels were created in relationship to the human race, and then when Satan fell. We'll just get to the first part of that uh, this week. When did the angels uh, fall? Uh, when were the angels created? Job 38, 4 through 7 gives us an understanding of this. We just looked at it. Uh, God asked Job, where were you when the angels sang for joy, the sons of God sang for joy, when I what? When I laid the foundation of the earth. And what that verse tells us is that when God initially lays the foundation, trace out that Hebrew word uh, translated foundation, you see that it is the starting point of something. It is not the end product. It is not just laying out all of the random parts and pieces of something that will eventually come together as something. It is the initial part of the building process. So at the very beginning, when Genesis 1 says God created the heavens and the earth at that starting point, the all of the angels, there's no division yet, all the angels, all the sons of God shouted for joy. So this tells us that when God initially created the universe, the heavens and the earth, he created a primordial earth and all of the sons of God without division, no fall yet among the angels, shouted for joy. They were in unison. And then when we come to Genesis uh, 1-2, we find that there is darkness on the face of the deep. And the earth is described in a state of chaos. In the Hebrew is called tohu vabohu, and that initial status of that perfect creation is now marred. There's this these terms that are used, not just one, but three terms, darkness, deep, and without form and void, are all terms in the Hebrew that carry overtones of chaos that's the result of sin. So there is this uh, judgment that occurs, and uh, many believe, and I believe, that this is a result of the angelic rebellion. And then God begins to restore the earth. Let me get this restore the earth into somewhat of a uh, present situation, the Genesis 1-3 restoration of the earth from Genesis 1-3 to Genesis uh, 2-4. And it is at this time that the angels fall. Now, you'll run into people who will say, well, the angels aren't created until the first day when God creates light. Angels are often referred to as light, and that's when angels were created. Others will say, well, when you get to the day day uh, four, when God creates the stars, angels are often identified with the stars. That's when angels were created. You'll find some that say that, that the angelic rebellion and the fall of Lucifer couldn't have taken place until after the creation week, before man, but before man fell. It occurs sometime in there. And they will usually argue from the uh, fact that at the end of the creation week, God says everything was very Good, and I'll say, see that word good? That means, that means pure, righteous, no sin in the universe. The problem with that, that I can't get anybody in that 
attempt to really answer is that in just the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, God uses that same word for good to uh, address the problem of man being alone. He says it's not good for man to be alone. Now, if the word good has a moral connotation to it at that point, then God would be saying that there's something unrighteous or immoral about being single. That, that's not true. The word tov has, to idea, has the idea of being, being fitted to a plan. In other words, when God announces at the end of each day that things were good or at the end of the creation week that things were very good, what he is identifying is that he had a blueprint, he had a plan. Day one, he accomplishes the first part of the plan. Day two, the second part. And as he completes the construction project each day, he says, it's exactly what I intended. It fits the plan. It's good. He's not saying it's righteous. He's simply saying it fits what I intended. It is exactly what I planned. And so at the end, when all is completed, he says it's very good. He's uh, completed the project. It is exactly what he intended as the architect, as the designer of the universe. It has nothing to do with whether or not uh, Satan fell. The best explanation is that Satan fell uh, long before man did, and there is, as I pointed out last time, the implications in Scripture that, that human history has something to do with this angelic fall. And we derive that from a lot of different things in the Scripture. I'll be pointing those out as we go through the angelic conflict. But part of it is just that when God finally resolves the issues of sin in human history, he resolves the issue of evil in the angelic realm at the same time. It all comes together and is all resolved in the period of the tribulation. And there is this time period halfway through the tribulation when Satan and a third of the angels are cast out of heaven. And when we get to Revelation chapter 10, 11, 12, and through there we will see that at that point they become visible to man and the demons are limited in their activities to, uh, to, to the earth and they are visible. It becomes a time not unlike that prior to the flood of Noah when angels and demons were also visible to man. And it is at that time that all of these judgments come together. There is an army of angels uh, restricted, or demons rather, uh, restricted and confined under the river Euphrates that is released at the, during this last stage of the period of tribulation, tribulation. So all of this comes together, and you cannot understand why God is bringing this about in human history unless you can understand the broader framework of the angelic conflict and how God is going to finally bring all of this to, to its culmination and judge sin and evil in all the universe and bring about uh, its final resolution and destruction and judgment. So next time we'll come back and we'll look at how this originated with the fall of that creature identified as Halal bin Shahar in Isaiah 14 and also in, as the king of Tyre in Ezekiel chapter 28 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to come to an understanding of the plan and purpose you have for the human race in the broader context of the angelic conflict. And that the centerpiece of all of history is how you defeated death and how you defeated sin, and this penalty for sin was paid for at the cross. 
that on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price for all human sin, that on the cross, the issue of sin was completely resolved so that now all that is necessary for us to have a relationship with you, for us to have eternal life, is to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So this opportunity that anyone is here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they have the opportunity to make that both sure and certain. It's your opportunity right now, right where you sit, to decide what you're trusting in for your eternal life. What will happen if you were to die today or tomorrow or sometime soon? Where would you go? Would you end up in heaven or would you end up in a place of eternal condemnation? The decision is yours. And as soon as you decide to put your faith alone in Christ alone in that instant, God gives you perfect righteousness, declares you just, and regenerates you and you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've study today that we might all recognize that our lives are not lived in a vacuum, but they're lived in the context of your plan, and that your plan for us is to grow to spiritual maturity, that we might be witnesses to not only other human beings, but also to the angels of your grace and your power and your love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.